0: Today you get to meet Bruce, who directed employee relations for a credit card company with over 15,000 employees. Employee relations is where cultures are made. You will hear how Bruce kept the human in human resources and the very high price he paid.
1: I have spent 36 years in HR, which is, you know, people can't see, but I don't have any hair. I think I lost it all when I was about 40 years old from being an HR.
0: Hi, I'm Michelle Aronson, and welcome to True Stories at Work, where we discuss the best things about working in human resources. The people, the stories, and the things that happen at work that we don't even know about. I'm a recovering HR executive, certified coach, and business school professor who knows that the best stories happen at work, from heartbreaking to heartwarming, from hilarious to outrageous. Bruce had so many great stories to share that I broke his interview into two episodes. On today's episode, you'll learn about Bruce's journey into HR.
1: I don't know why I did this. I literally took the first HR job that came my way. It was mainly recruiting. I I didn't mind the recruiting, but I just, there's nothing else about the job or the company (laughs) that I liked. And I knew it was a bad sign when, as part of the interview process, the head of HR asked me to interview myself. That
0: was the interview. He shares stories about the invisible things that create cultures, like telling the truth and listening to each other. You'll learn Bruce's biggest pet peeve,
1: Let's just start with the word meetings.
0: And how he would improve meetings to build a better workplace. He shares stories about the impact of COVID on company culture and how it quickly shifted things from interpersonal, face-to-face, to online via social media.
1: Yes, we had a social media policy. But we often didn't have issues of people posting things that were very questionable and where we had to decide whether or not it was appropriate or not, violated policy, action should be taken.
0: You'll learn how his company made daily decisions to protect their culture by clearly defining the kind of people they wanted to be working at their company. At the end, you will hear a workplace confession, something that didn't make it through the doors of HR. Once again, this is my best friend at her worst. While I give her coworkers credit for retaliating, it is pretty disgusting, so decide if you want to know what she fed her colleagues at the potluck. So let's get started. I'm excited to have you on my show. We're newer colleagues. You kind of have the sweet spot for great HR stories, so tell me a little bit about what you're... Last job was in HR, and then I really want to go back to the beginnings.
1: So I recently retired from the credit card company. My last title there was Director of Employee Relations. And uh, I spent most of my time there as an HR business partner, but we decided to break up the function into three different groups. One of the groups was going to be Employee Relations. I, for some whatever reason, in a weak moment, Maybe I was under the influence, volunteered to head up the employee relations function. I actually do love that kind of work. And I think either you love it or hate it. I think more people hate it than love it, but I like it a lot. I had a chance to build a function and then run the function and just really enjoyed it, uh, build the team. We put in everything, you know, process, procedure, policy, all kinds of training for managers, employees, for, for my own team members. And that's what I did from 2016 until I retired end of April.
0: Awesome. Tell me your backstory. So when you were a kid growing up in where?
1: I actually grew up in the city of Chicago. So even though people claim they're from Chicago, they're usually from the suburbs of Chicago, but I am a city boy.
0: Okay. So when you were growing up in the city of Chicago, was Mm -hmm. your dream to be in charge of employee relations? Or what were you aspiring to way back when?
1: Yeah, I definitely, it's all (laughs) I thought about every day. You know, gosh, if I can just set up employee relations. I was very big into (laughs) playing with my construction toys. And all I wanted to do was operate the wrecking ball so that I can just knock buildings down all day long. (laughs) And that's That's what I dreamed about doing. A little bit different from HR, but not completely.
0: Not completely. I mean, (laughs) some people might argue that you might have fulfilled your mission. (laughs) So how did you get into HR?
1: I fell into it. So when I first started college, and I was not really interested in going to college, but my parents didn't give me much of a choice, and they told me what I was going to major in, which was engineering So if that's what I was going to major in, then I was going to decide what school I was going to go to. I went to Arizona State, which was known for engineering. I lasted about a semester when I decided I hated engineering or classes you needed to prepare to become an engineering student and discovered an interest in business. While I was discovering that interest in business, I had a summer job. I went to work for a small manufacturing firm and met the head of HR there, who seemed to be the happiest guy in the whole company. And I talked to him frequently about what he did, what he liked. He was always walking around, talking to people, always smiling. And he just felt so satisfied that, you know, I'll put this very simply, that he felt that he can have the biggest impact on people of any other person in the organization. So that was something that really resonated with me. And I started to look into it, started to take courses in college in human resources, really liked it. And while I was taking human resources courses, I also started taking psychology courses. And I thought, this is a real good fit for me, pursuing a career in in HR. And I switched schools, enjoyed the classes. Kind of the rest is history. I did get a master's in HR. I've only worked in HR some people think there's something wrong with me for doing that i've spent 36 years in hr which is you know people can't see but i don't have any hair i think i lost it all when i was about 40 years old from being in hr i
0: i, I agree i i don't have any hair either after 20 <laughs> years in hr i can i can relate either you pull it out or mm-hmm. it just or falls out it or, just you know, falls out other is people that, pull it out it it could be that is a hundred percent true Coming back to, like, your first job in HR, what were you expecting when you started this this job that was going to make everybody happy?
1: I don't know why I did this. I literally took the first HR job that came my way. It was mainly recruiting. I, I didn't mind the recruiting, but I just, there's nothing else about the job or the company <laughs> that I liked. And I knew it was a bad sign when, as part of the interview process, the head of HR... Asked me to interview myself. That was the interview. So talk about a stressful situation, which I would never put anyone in a situation like that. But it was, hey, why don't you ask yourself questions and then answer them?
0: What What kind of questions did you <laughs> ask? What did you? I would ask softball's right, like.
1: <laughs> well, once I got through this, you know, I had so much stress from that, and I had so many thoughts running through my head, like. What am I going to ask? Because I don't want them to be too difficult, right? So I don't know. I just kind of started with the basics. You know, hey, Bruce, why don't you take a little bit of time and talk to me about your college experience? What did you like, not like? What classes did you enjoy and why? How did you get into HR? What do you want to do with an HR career? Why are you interested in this position? So kind of the basic, typical questions. And somehow I survived. But it didn't last very long. I worked all all of six months, and then I found another opportunity, and that was really the start of my HR career.
0: What was the um, opportunity that took you out of this interviewing yourself job?
1: Actually, it was a pretty cool opportunity, especially for somebody my age, because I was 22 at the time. And it was literally being the HR function for a very small manufacturing unit of a manufacturing company in Chicago, far south side, and it was unionized. And I had zero experience with unions and it was the and they were not the happiest bunch of people to deal with. But it was like being thrown in the deep end of the pool and having to learn a lot of things very quickly and having to really learn how to build relationships with the union steward, and the employees. So it was just, yeah, really an opportunity to learn a lot of things fast. Otherwise, you would just not survive in an environment like that.
0: What surprised you from what you thought HR would be to what your day-to-day work was like?
1: Well, I've always viewed myself as somebody who wants to help, help other people, make life easier for people. It's very difficult to do in dealing with I mean, I thought that it would be easy to build a relationship and say, hey, we're in this together. Let's work things out. But I just felt like no matter what I did, no matter what I tried, no matter how nice I was, they just fought me every step of the way. Mm -hmm. It was hard to get them to agree to anything. Their view was my way or the highway. We can shut this plant down in a second. We really control things you don't. We're going to tell you what to do. So, you know, that wasn't exactly what I was expecting.
0: Do you have an example of one thing where you thought, oh, this is going to be easy? And then it was like, no way.
1: Yeah. I mean, we had an issue with people showing up on time or people showing up at all. And a number of these people worked in the neighborhood. It wasn't like, hey, my car broke down and I can't make it today. So, It was, hey, you know, let's work together because my doing this by myself is not likely to be nearly as successful as if you also have conversation and try to find out why are you coming to work late and what can we do to make sure you come on time and show up every day. If they're not comfortable talking to me, but they're comfortable giving you some information, you can then give that information to me in kind of a summarized fashion. We can figure things out. But when situations like that came up, it was like, I don't know. They didn't want to make anything easy. They weren't in a hurry to try to help. Even though, if you think about it, if the company did well, then they do well. You know, wh- what happened is the company then started to struggle at some point. We had to start letting people go. So, again, if you don't have that partnership, it makes it very hard to be successful. So that was very frustrating. Mm-hmm.
0: I have no experience with unions, and I'm not sad about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you also have to keep in mind, this was almost 35 years ago. And so the operated a certain way. And, you know, I I do think it's different today with unions. I think there is, in general, more collaboration. But back then, it was, we're not going to be on the same team, you know. And they were very short-term focused, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Growing up in your career, did you have a leader who um, who gave you good advice, who mentored you?
1: So let me start with the word unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> unfortunately, I worked for a number of leaders who I felt I really didn't learn much from. I felt really didn't spend a lot of quality time with me helping to learn, grow, taking a vested interest in my career or talking to me about what would help me to develop and how do we go about doing that with training or experience or opportunity. But there were a couple of, of leaders that stood out and actually one of them was the plant manager, you know, for this company I was talking about that had the union who one, one of the most powerful things he said early on, and he was such an easygoing individual and he just wanted people to be successful. Right? So, he didn't have some agenda about what would make him look good. It was about we're in this together. What can I do to help you? And I, I loved it when he said, you know, at times we're all going to fail. We're, we're going to screw up. And that's okay. But when you do it, tell me that you screwed up. Tell me that you failed. I mean, that has stuck with me my whole life, and I've tried to instill that in others that, you know, it's okay to take risks, it's okay to, you know, do things differently, it may not work out. Or just day to day, you may forget to do something or you say the wrong thing. But, you know, let's talk about it. You know, why did it happen? How can we prevent it from happening? But I think it's something that a lot of people don't do. They they hide things in corporate America, they don't talk about when they goof something up or, you know, something didn't work out. People are so afraid to say a project is like behind schedule or it's in the red or, you know, everybody wants to say everything's great and everything's green. But that really stuck with me. And then I had another leader who I think the most important thing he did was just demonstrate he cared about me. He just really got to know me as a person. You know? So he got to know what was going on in my personal life. And so if I was down one day or if I was up one day, you know, he would reach out, you know, hey, what's going on, You uh, he seemed down. And because he showed that interest, I felt such a comfort with him. You know, so I was not just an employee, I was a human being. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things really stuck with me, influenced me.
0: They make a difference. Mm-hmm. I want to dig into both of those. So I want to dig into like the fear of failure, if that's the right word, All companies want their employees to be innovative, but they don't let you fail in your innovation. So how innovative can you really be?
1: You know, one of the things that this leader did is he would admit failures in front of all of us. So we would have these weekly staff meetings. And he would say that he wanted us to say these things out loud, like in front of the, the rest of the group. And because he did it, we felt more comfortable doing it. And if he didn't hear anything for a while, you know, he would you know, hey, Bruce, you know, everything's really going great or what's going on. If I can jump ahead, yeah. I think of the last team that I had. When, so when I worked, at I had as many as uh, about 28 people working for me. And, you know, I felt good that at times people would come forward and say, you know, hey, I messed this thing up. I felt it was my job to really say, don't look at it that way let's talk about it as a learning opportunity, right? Let's really focus on that. So let's look at it as, you know, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? What can you do to prevent that same thing from going wrong? So I totally appreciate you bringing it forward. And now let's turn it into a positive kind of thing because who doesn't make mistakes all the time? And I would tell my own team (laughs) during staff meetings, like, okay, this week alone I'm sure I, you know, goofed up five different things or i thought the policy was this and without even looking it up i told the employee what i thought the answer was to something but we're always doing things that are just not going to be perfect and and that's okay and that should be expected and you shouldn't have to worry about it now if you make the same mistake over and over and over that's a different story and we need to have a, a different conversation so I'm very forgiving of people who make mistakes. It's just, you know, we're human.
0: And and I think as a good leader, too, you need to let people make mistakes. Like, they have to fail to grow. You can't protect people from that suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the biggest lesson that you've learned from working in HR for 30 years?
1: As I think about that question, there's just... So many things that come to mind. And so I can answer that question differently, you know, an hour from now. And I'm trying to remember, oh, this is Stephen Covey, said, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. And so I just realized the importance of listening. Even though I may totally disagree with somebody or or disagree with something because I have very strong opinions about things. It's like, make sure you really understand where someone else is coming from. Why did, did they have that recommendation? Or why have they drawn that conclusion? Or, you know, why are they making certain assumptions about something, right? Listen to what they're saying. Repeat back a little bit about what they're saying to make sure you understand it. Ask questions uh, to, to really make sure you understand what they're saying. And number one, that helps make a great connection with somebody. Because when they feel that they're being heard, they're more likely then to listen to to you. Not always the case, but I think often the case. So the advice I give to people around that goes a little bit further than just being in the moment and listening to somebody. It's also like even when you join an organization, listen to the organization. You know, if you want to be successful there, listen to... I guess, the, the culture, right? What is the culture telling you versus coming in with all your own ideas? And this is what I did at this other company. So, you know, try to understand how that organization thinks and runs and leadership styles and how to navigate, and, and then you'll be much more successful.
0: So. Your job really was the enforcer of the culture, I imagine, like when you, when you look at how people are rewarded or punished, the reason people end up in employee relations is probably a direct reflection of the unwritten rules. So listening is important for sure. What is your workplace pet peeve?
1: <laughs> and I can only, only have one?
0: You can have as many as you like.
1: Mm. Let's just start with the word meetings. If I was to run a company today... I would literally, if I was CEO, tell management, you've got a couple of things you're going to do. You're going to look at all the meetings you have, and you're going to cut those by 50%. Then those that you keep, however long they are, you're going to cut the length of those by 50%. Because I generally think most meetings are a waste of time and a poor way to communicate things. So that, my biggest pet peeve is just the number of meetings you have in corporate America, how ineffective they are, how much people dread them. And what's really sad and what happened a lot during COVID is people were totally multitasking during meetings. So how engaged are they really? Who's even <laughs> listening to what's going on during the meeting?
0: How did things change during COVID like from an employee relations perspective? What kinds of things were you doing when people were working from home?
1: I mean, in, in, in general, companies got a great benefit by having employees work from home because in our organization, and I'm sure this is typical with a lot of organizations, one of the most common complaints is you have one employee complaining about another employee. Most of those complaints occur because those employees are working Together, near each other, so whether it's sexual harassment and some sort of inappropriate touching, or the you know likelihood you're going to engage in some sort of conversation that may not be appropriate, uh, or you've got a coworker who bugs you because they they always bring in this food and it smells, or they make a mess of their area, or maybe the employee hasn't showered or you know <laughs> doesn't use. Deodorant, but the number of complaints against other employees dropped by about forty percent. So that's a lot less investigation work, a lot less likelihood that somebody brings a complaint by by going through an organization.
0: EEOC e- or, geez, yeah, or yeah. exactly the EEOC.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I blocked them out. Already. EEOC, Department of Human Rights. You know or the Department of Labor, et cetera.
0: So what was your like favorite investigation during COVID? Like what kinds of things remained?
1: I have to start with what I think is really important when you investigate somebody is to ideally be in a room with them so that you can face them face to face because you know, there's so much you can learn from somebody's nonverbal behaviors. And there were times I'd have someone in the room with me and all I would have them do is take notes and just watch the individual. And when you're on Zoom, it's just so much harder to pick up on on those kinds of things. But sadly, the most common thing that we were looking into had to do with social media posts. And this actually opened up a whole new area. Yes, we had a social media policy. But we often didn't have issues of people posting things that were very questionable and where we had to decide whether or not it was appropriate or not, violated policy, action should be taken. With all the social unrest and with what was going on in politics, all of a sudden people were posting like crazy. And in some places it was very public. In other places it was just their own little Facebook site. People had limited access. In some cases it was clear they were employee in other cases it wouldn't but all of a sudden we had all these social media posts and it's how do we want to deal with these things what position do we want to take as a company so now you're talking about philosophy and things are not black and white when you're dealing with these things so we did end up involving people from the law department uh, HR business partners even a group of employees to talk about what would be fair in particular when it came to the social unrest type of of postings. And based on the criteria we put together, it did become a lot easier to figure out what to do. But the most important decision we made, and it was a big decision, it was something that I pushed, was you had to ask yourself, is this the kind of person I want working at this company? So if they're posting things that really make others uncomfortable even though it's a limited audience that sees it again is this the kind of person we want working at this company on the other hand you know there is freedom of speech Mm -hmm. so it's one thing to talk about i support xyz political party or i don't support that party it's another thing when you start threatening violence or saying you know if if you get in front of my car and you're protesting, I'm going to run you down. Or people start using uh, very inappropriate language to describe another group, race, ethnicity, etc. I don't believe in zero-tolerance policies. Never a fan. I think that takes judgment out of the situation. And it takes things to a point where all of a sudden you're somehow saying everything is equal. And I never believe that. I always believe every situation is different. You need to assess it and figure out what makes sense but the bottom line is we decided to take a very strong stance mm-hmm. and not every even the law department wasn't totally on on board with that but it became a lot easier when managers asked, yeah I don't feel comfortable having this person represent us or be it in in this organization if that's the way they're going to communicate
0: Do you have an example or a situation you can share? Like what kinds of things were being posted? (laughs) Uh,
1: Let's see. It depends on, I guess, what this is rated.
0: (laughs) Any word you want, but not like racist terms. Yeah, I mean, it it ranged. I can beep it out.
1: (laughs) It ranged from people saying that, you know, anybody who chooses to loot should just automatically be shot on sight. Or anybody who protests and while they're, you know, protesting, they're making very negative comments about the, the police. People making very strong comments about, on the one hand, Trump calling him all kinds of, you know, names, etc. Other individuals who would throw out these conspiracy theories and say, this group is out to get us and we've got to do something to stop them. We need to do whatever it takes. You know, if we need to rise up against them, that's what we need to do. But the bottom line is just there was a lot of hate. Mm -hmm. There were people who did use like the N-word to describe other people. On the other hand, there were people who posted things, you know, where they would say white lives matter. Or I don't believe in the phrase black lives matter. And people would complain about those things and they would come to us. But we felt that was more of a freedom of speech. You know, that wasn't something that uh, rose to the level that we felt was inappropriate.
0: I have a friend who's in the middle of a horrible situation with a termination and all sorts of social media things. And she was referred to a Law firms now have, as of the pandemic, social media experts versus just your regular lawyer. You get a a specialist now that's a social media maven. I'm not surprised
1: because it really gets into where do you draw the line? And that gets back to if only my friends can see it on Facebook Mm -hmm. or if one customer complains about it. And here's the only reason they found out about it. And is it freedom of speech or not? You know, but we also felt, you know what, if somebody wants to sue us, go ahead. We don't want you here, and we're willing to fight that fight. And if we have to settle, we settle. You know, So there may be a cost to it, but we were okay with that as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the other, you know, I talked about employees complaining about other employees. The other most common complaint category is employees complaining about managers.
0: Tune in to the second part of Bruce's interview where he shares stories on how to truly become a memorable leader and another great and by great i mean awful story about how ending a sexual relationship with a coworker could end in a disaster
1: we've all done something bad at work but here's your chance to confess from small wrongs like borrowing office supplies to simplify your back to school shopping or snacking on a coworker's lunch to the major workplace sins, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type. Here is today's Conscious Clearing Confession.
2: Workplace Confession for April Fool's Day years later. After years of abuse, the people that I worked with decided that they were going to take their revenge upon me. What they didn't know about me is that for this particular April Fool's Day, I wasn't going to do a thing. I felt that if I just didn't do anything at all, not a single April Fool's joke, that they would be anxious all day expecting something from me, always looking around the corner. But my plan was just to let it ride. And that was actually the joke. But what happened instead is that they sent me to a conference in the morning, which put me at work several hours later than I would normally have been there. And when I got there, they had wrapped my cubicle in shrink wrap and filled the entire thing with packing peanuts. And I can tell you that it takes hours upon hours to try to empty that out with giant cardboard box just lifting out weightless loads of packing peanuts into a rolling dumpster. And several hours later, I still wasn't very far into my cubicle. You couldn't even see my computer. But I had noticed on one of my breaks that there was a flyer in the office that that day there was going to be a potluck. And I thought, you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. So I left and went home for lunch, citing the need to let out my sweet pugs to empty their bladders into the backyard. And what I did was I decided to make a seven-layer Mexican dip for my colleagues, starting with two cans of Alpo dog food on the bottom, followed by a can of roasted green chilies, black olives, cheddar cheese, salsa, which I baked and made my house smell like hell. And I covered it in foil and I bought the type of tortilla chips that are actually scoop shaped. So you really got a good amount in there. And I arrived at about 1220 to the potluck, which was already underway. And I went in and I put the dish on the table and pulled off the foil and emptied the chips into a bowl. And said that I needed to at least get to my computer. And that I would be back for lunch as soon as I got at least to my computer. And I left and I sat at my desk for 25 minutes laughing my ass off. While I knew they were in there eating dog food. Sure enough, 25 minutes later, I got up. I went into the break room. I picked up a paper plate and a single slice of easily identifiable American cheese. And I walked into the room where everyone was eating, and I noticed that there was only one corner of my layered dip left, one small corner, lonely, in the glass baking dish. And I sat down, and everyone's chatting, and I'm happy to talk with everybody, and all of a sudden says, someone says, Hey, how come you only have a piece of cheese on your plate? And then someone says, what did you put in that dip? It tasted kind of funny. And then my boss says, I loved it. I had three helpings. And I couldn't hold it anymore. And that's when I was like, that's it. You mess with me? you fools, you all ate dog food. And I got them and I left the room laughing. It was a good one. But what had happened after that is apparently a coworker of mine complained the board of this very large institution and they forbade potlucks across the entire organization and there were probably 16 or 17 campuses outlawed forever and ever
0: because of me. I just want to be clear that Zoe had received the highest level of recognition at this university and had the honor of sitting at the president's table. I also want to be clear that I would 100% have terminated my best friend for this behavior if it happened at my company. So please don't do this at work. Thanks for listening to the show. If you work in HR and have a story to share, please visit my website, physicsatwork.com podcast. Stories are what people remember and how we connect. So please share yours with me. Thanks. Haiku for Bruce, part one, COVID impacts work by posting face-to-face chats out for all to read.